You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, children, teenagers, toddlers, everyone in between, to episode 22 of the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. My co-host, as always, the Honourable J. David Markham, and a special, special co-co-host today, a special guest. We've been uh, trying to pull this together for quite some time now. Professor Bob Packett from the History According to Bob podcast, which was in many ways the inspiration for our own little Humble Napoleon podcast. Welcome to the show, Professor Bob. Thank you very much. It's been tough trying to get us all connected, but I've been looking forward to it. So have I, sir. Now, a bit of background for people, if you haven't heard, I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you also listen to Bob's podcast. It's it's probably the original history podcast, as far as I'm aware. Would that be a fair statement, Bob? Well, it's hard to say. I, I think it is. I mean, it was March 15th, two years ago. Um, I think there were maybe a couple of people that did a, a show or two, but... Um, the- that's pretty much yeah one of the one of the very earliest ones. I remember I'd been listening to it for a long time, and and you would do the occasional episode on Napoleon. I think, oh man, it'd be great would it be to talk about Napoleon every week. And then uh, David and I hooked up, but it was really led by the inspiration of listening to your show. So thank you, sir, for for helping instill the idea and for leading the way. Now. We, we, we had a bit of a chat amongst ourselves on email about what we should do with this special episode, having Bob involved, whether or not we should just do a, we should break our linear format and just do a what do you think about Napoleon Bob kind of show, or if we should do, we should stick to the linear episodes, and we've decided to have a crack at that. Not sure how much it's going to interrupt the uh, the rhythm that David and I have got going, which is basically where David does all the talking and I just press the buttons. But we'll, actually, we'll... so so far uh, this has been great. I haven't had to do any of the talking, and uh, and and yet I'm still here. So that's uh, that's that that's working out real well so far. My my concern is if you don't have to do a fair amount of talking, you might be drinking too much of the medication there, David, and we might lose well, you altogether. You know, I've I've just got back from Israel and I'm a little jet lagged and 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 I had a little infection I picked up and and I need my medication. There's no doubt about it. Got to kill those germs. And so, tell us about Israel, just uh, quickly, what you were over there for. Well, we had a conference over in uh, Tel Aviv uh, with uh, mostly Israeli scholars and 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 a good friend of mine, General Michel Franceschi from from France, and and, and then myself. Uh, and it was a one-day symposium on Napoleon's relationship uh, uh, with with the Jews. And as I as I joked to my friends, and I've, I've, this is my third trip to Israel uh, for for conferences, and, and and I've got a lot of good friends there. And I joke with them a little bit as a non-Jew and a non-Israeli going to an Israeli conference of Jewish scholars. I I felt at least a little. Per- 
presumptuous and nervous uh, going in there. Uh, but it went real well. <clears throat> like I say, they're all good friends of mine, and the conference was uh, excellent. And, and my wife, Barbara, was able to go on this trip for her, her first time there. And, and so they took us around to to a lot of the historic sites, uh, uh, some of them non-Napoleonic, like uh, Masada uh, and, of course, the Dead Sea. And then we also went to Joppa and uh, Saint Jean d'Acre, you know, our, our, our uh, acre in uh, uh, the northern part, uh, the Napoleonic sites, and and it was really uh, quite a wonderful experience. And and I also want to announce to to our our, our listeners out there that we've got the the International Napoleonic Society uh, has two more conferences uh, scheduled, and, and one of my duties as executive vice president is to organize these things. Uh, next year, probably the last week in June, we're going to do a, a one-week conference in uh, Corsica, uh, which will include a day trip to the island of Elba, uh, and we'll look around the island a little bit, look around Corsica a little bit, uh, and, and have some of the uh, the world's best scholars uh, come and talk to us. Uh, and then a year later, uh, we will go to uh, to to Akko, uh, to to Saint Jean d'Acre. Uh, and have a conference there uh, co-sponsored by the city of Acre. And uh, I had a nice meeting in the mayor's office uh, last week, and, and we're starting to put that together. So you, you folks out there might want to put on your calendars, if you're interested uh, in participating, uh, these two conferences, because they, they, they should be just really, truly outstanding conferences uh, of the International Napoleonic Society, uh, with, with our president uh, and benefactor, Ben Weider, uh, really, really puts on excellent conferences. And then, of course, we've got one the first uh, week of July this summer and Schloops of uh, Poland in northern Poland, not too far from Gdansk. And if you're going to be there, we certainly would encourage you to, to attend those. I think uh, after we finish this Napoleonic series, it would be a delightful idea if we meet uh, up at all of these conferences every year and just do a, uh, a special edition. What do you think? Oh, I think absolutely. Uh, uh, I would love to have uh, had you come down to the one that we had in, in Seattle <clears throat> this past year. And we have another one coming up in October, I think, in Chicago. Uh as far as the conferences in, in the United States go, and then another one in Alabama in, in the spring. Uh, but I certainly would love to have uh, do, do the podcasting uh, from from the conference in, in uh, Corsica and the next one again in Israel. Of course, you do. Uh, there's, a, there's a fallacy to your statement, and I hate to see you put such a, a strenuous uh, uh, condition on doing this because you said when we finish the Napoleon one on ones and it's not at all certain that we'll ever actually finish the Napoleon 101 series. <laughs> now, um, you, you should uh, you, you should do a video. You should bring a video camera and do a video podcast from Corsica. Well, we well, have we, a, we have talked about the fact that we will do the video edition of this series at some stage in the next couple of years on location at all of the sites that we mentioned. So, and you'd be most sure. welcome to join us, Bob. Well, I and of course, Corsica, <laughs> Corsica would be a very good place to start if we can. If we can bring that together technologically, I'm about to buy a, a fairly sophisticated uh, HD uh, camcorder, uh, and uh, if we can if we can pull that all together, uh, Cameron, it would uh, Corsica, the birthplace of Napoleon, and then a side trip to Elba, uh, where he ruled for ten months or so as emperor, uh, would be a very good place to start. Now you'd, we'd have to keep that camera off the beach, I'm sure, but. Uh, <laughs> 
I do love I do love Corsica. I was there a couple of years ago for Napoleon's birthday on August fifteenth, and the celebrations, and it was uh, it was tremendous. It was a lot of fun. Now, Bob, uh, one of the things we should clarify: the audience <laughs> knows that whilst David and I try to remain balanced in our coverage of this story, that at heart we are both fans of Napoleon. Where do you sit on Napoleon? Was he? Well, uh, I'm I'm a I'm a fan also. I I tend to be uh, the apologist to some extent because most of the time the faculty at the uh, university are all you know anti Napoleon. Uh, when they did the when we had the uh, uh, the bicentennial of his coronation, I. I brought in champagne, and I had a special cake made and brought it into the office. I had at least two of the professors that said, well, how, why don't we just celebrate the Holocaust while we're at it, you know? And I'm oh, like, what good is wrong God. with you? And uh, they, we had a big argument over it, but everybody else, after we got enough champagne in them, they, were, they, they mellowed out a little bit. And then uh, when when they had the bicentennial of Trafalgar, I had a little bitty cake made and brought in for the, those professors. Uh, I said, "Well, there's something on the other side." But uh, I'm generally, that is always the way it has been. When I was in college, taking un, taking graduate courses and undergraduate courses, uh, generally speaking, I had one professor. I took a course on French Revolution and Napoleon. We never got to Napoleon, and I said, "Professor, I would, at the rate we're going, we're never going to get to Napoleon." He said. Or we're not uh, going to get to Napoleon. Then I said, "Would you change the course title so I could find somebody who would do that?" <laughs> so that yeah, that's usually where yeah, I funny. end up. It's funny you mention that, Bob, because uh, one of my graduate classes uh, on, the, on the same title of course, French Revolution and Napoleon, taught by a full uh, lady uh, who was really, really good. But <laughs> she went on and on and on and on about the French Revolution. I swear to God, we never, we never hardly got to Napoleon, and I and I groused to, to her about that a bit, and she she chuckled, but uh, it was a good course, and I I know a lot more about the French Revolution now than than I yeah I, I do I do also. <laughs> I okay, have so. my papers with all the red marks saying, I disagree wholeheartedly with what you're saying, but you, you have it well defended. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we've got the disclaimer out of the way now that uh, we've got three Napoleon uh, apologists on the show and people will just have uh, to... I, I, I will object to the use of the word apologist, of course. Uh, we are people who have have studied uh, carefully the, the history of Napoleon and of that epoch, and the conclusions that we have drawn are that Napoleon is, a, is, is all a very positive figure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know that I'm apologizing to anyone, because I don't think Napoleon needs an apology. I think that reasonable people may differ on on various things. Uh, well, actually, he probably example, he, the, he, he the deserves papers. an apology. Yeah, the, the that's paper. correct. He probably deserves an apology. <laughs> well, that's for sure. That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll certainly go along with that. Uh, okay, so last episode that we did, uh, embarrassingly enough, almost a month ago, David, and that's my fault, listeners. We did have a show scheduled, and I had to uh, postpone it, and then David went to Israel. So uh, mere culpa on the great delay. Well, don't, but don't don't feel you need to apologize. I'll remind our <laughs> listeners that initially we did this thing once a month, and we've been trying to to increase the pace a little bit. But 
One of the reasons that we used to do it once a month is, is because it's it's not easy. Uh, we each have our day jobs, as it were, and it's not easy to pull this together. But uh, I, I was gone for a week, and and, uh, and and so I'm at least as, as, as guilty as you are. Okay, but the last episode we did the War of the Fifth Coalition, which basically leads us to a point now where Europe is at peace again, more or less, apart from things going on down in the peninsula, which we've already covered and we don't want to go back there. We will touch on it again at some stage, perhaps. But uh, uh, We can help. Yeah, no, yeah. Right. I, I agree. Oh, it's very sad stuff. But we're, basically what we're going to talk about today is what happened in this period from sort of 1809 to 1812. And we sort of out of the military affairs for the time being and looking more at Napoleon's home life. Which, looking at other affairs, yes. Yes, that's right. And this is a you know, this is a very interesting period. I know that you've said quite a few times on the show, David, over the over the last year that you feel that in many ways you can tie Napoleon's downfall to the divorce from Josephine, and, and that's where we're at in this story. Now, obviously, we've covered uh, Josephine and his relationship with her a few times over the course of the show. Uh, what started off as a very, very passionate love affair, certainly on Napoleon's behalf, Josephine started off a little bit more political, perhaps, in her uh, attraction to Napoleon. But uh, you know, I genuinely... Well, she, was downright, she was downright chilly. But I genuinely believe, and I think you do too, that over time she did grow to be in love with this man, even though you know she continued her sexual exploits. But the, the, my apology for her as well, you know, this guy married her and then he took off for a year on campaign. Uh, what's a what's a healthy woman with a healthy sexual appetite? Well, she had black teeth, but you know, she 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 had a woman's urges, and he was away. Anyway. We're at a point now where the relationship is pretty much in its last days. Uh, yeah. She well, hasn't. But well, listen, I mean, you, you, I just want to sort of add to that a little bit. You're absolutely right. the The relationship started off in a in sort of an odd way. You know, he was he was really really passionate. She was a little cooler and 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 maybe a little more calculating. Uh, and, and not entirely honest with him. Uh, he he thought that that she had a lot more money uh, than, than than she did. But but she was also useful politically to him. She did have a lot of connections, uh, not the least of which was to Barra and so on. But as you as you say, Cameron, and and I'm sure Bob will agree, the the relationship ultimately becomes a pretty doggone good relationship. And it's a good relationship in more ways than one. It's a good relationship, I think, first of all, between the two of them. They really settle into a, a, a good life together, uh, a lot of mutual respect. I, I think you're right, a lot of mutual love. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy when you're emperor and empress to, to, uh, to, to rather enjoy that lifestyle and to enjoy each other. Uh, but it was, it was also... A good relationship for France, and one of the things that that I think a lot of people don't really necessarily think about is is how the relationship between between a husband and wife who are rulers uh, can can affect and and the 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 people they rule. I mean, 
think about for those of you who who followed things in the 1990s with, with, with in the United States with Clintons and and some of the difficulties, uh, personal difficulties. That that had a lot of influence on the way people saw Bill Clinton and, for that matter, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and, and this has always been the case. And here you've got Napoleon and Josephine falling into this really very good relationship, and the people of France became extremely fond of them. And, and the army became... Uh, extremely fond of the two of them and, and began to see Josephine to a large extent as as almost a good luck talisman, you know, really yeah. really a, a charm for Napoleon's life and therefore for the life of France. And as long as that continues, things are, are pretty good. But the problem that's going to happen is that it's, it's, it's going to be one of these deals where something seems like a good idea at the time, seemed important at the time, turned out, we'll all find out later, not to have been nearly as important or nearly as good an idea uh, as, as had been thought. And that, of course, is the question of succession. Bob, um, any thoughts on... What well, brought I, mean, about I, I the agree end of the with a lot of what uh, what was said. Uh, in particular, one of the things that Josephine brought to the table that you know, Napoleon hated to, to do the uh, the events with the diplomats and all of that, and and that was Josephine's specialty. She yes. uh, she allowed him to you know show up and and do what he did, but she would set the parties up. She would do the all of the uh, invitations and. And, and set up the entertainments, and then, of course, her and her friends, Madame d'Italienne and Madame Recamier, they set the, the trend for um, clothing and, and everything else. But she was very, uh, very helpful. It was uh, like and, his and social aide-de-camp. Yeah, with, without it. Actually, it might even, I would put her more of a general of social life rather than the, just because he was, you know, it's just not his specialty. Um, she tried sure. to teach him how to dance, but at least she kept her feet as a result. But uh, <laughs> uh, very, very good. And definitely, I mean, when they're divorced, I mean, the Army believed that that was, to some extent, this, the idea that she was his good luck charm was, was certainly a, an issue. And a doggone succession. Uh, I, you know, I firmly believe that if they had had children, they wouldn't have divorced. Mm-hmm. They had well, plenty no- of opportunities to do it. There's absolutely no question. The only reason they got divorced is the the, the, the issue of, of offspring. Napoleon had been, you know, had, had had escaped a few close calls of assassinations and so on, and and Napoleon is becomes convinced and, and I think we, we all know that that he was probably wrong in, in, in being convinced on this, but, but he became convinced that he had to have a male heir to the throne. And, uh, of course, they were not producing a male heir. It, it seems to me we may have talked about it in an earlier show. I don't remember uh, that in 1802, uh, Josephine's daughter, uh, who, who had married uh, Napoleon's brother, Louis, uh, had, had a boy. And right, Napoleon and Josephine yeah. said, okay, we'll just adopt this, this boy as our heir. It's got Josephine's blood in it. It's got Napoleon's blood, the family family blood, uh, and that's fine. And the kid lives five years, and everything goes along hunky dory. 
But in 1807, the boy dies. And once the boy dies, all of a sudden, now here we go again. How does Napoleon have ever? And, you know, typically uh, uh, you, you, you have to try to, to, to assign fault. You know, whose fault is it they're not reproducing? Uh, and uh, Napoleon had success of fathering, uh, first of all, of course, uh, a, a child with Marie Valeska. We talked about his Polish mistress. He fathers a child there. He fathers, you know, one or two others along the way uh, through mistresses, uh, at least one of which was arranged by his mother because his mother hated Josephine and wanted to prove somehow that, that it wasn't Napoleon's fault. So it turns out that, yes, indeed, uh, as a result of a fall down some stairs and so on, that, that Josephine uh, is is the reason they're not producing an heir. And Napoleon draws this this conclusion somewhere along the line. It's 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 unsure the size, but in 1809 he, he he springs it on her that somehow for the good of France and his destiny uh, he has to divorce Josephine. And and uh, then find somebody else. And you know he put that decision off. There's there's all sorts of evidence to indicate that 18 months prior to uh, his actually telling her that the deal has he'd pretty much made up his mind. He just had trouble bringing himself to do it. I mean she was well aware by the, that evening of of uh, December the of well when whenever they're when they're meeting in 1809 at dinner uh, that that. It's it's going to happen. I'm sure she heard it through the through the grapevine all by this time. But he just he just agonized over it. Sure. Well, he really did love her, and it may even be that he understood the broader ramifications, other than just he's losing the love of his life. Uh, he he may have really had misgivings about the effect on France the effect on the morale of the country. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. I, I've not come across anything that he ever wrote uh, that would necessarily indicate that. But as you say, Bob, he, he, he agonized. He didn't like it. Uh, and he treated her well. Uh, you know, he gave her Malmaison. She was allowed to keep the title uh, of, of Empress. Uh, she continued to be a wealthy, powerful woman in French society. Uh, she still had lots and lots of parties, one of which eventually kills her. Uh, and, and she has a lot of influence. And there's no question in my mind that Napoleon, no matter how much he loved his new wife, we'll get to in a minute, Marie-Louise, uh, Napoleon never really lost his love for Josephine. And I don't think she, she ever lost her love for him. I think they both probably realized, and certainly Napoleon later in life, I think, understood that that had been a mistake. You know, as, other than the fact that he did grow to love his son, the, the King of Rome, a great deal, uh, he, he certainly was happy about that. But I think he, he realized that this had been a mistake. But again, as I said a while ago, it was one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time. If you look at it logically and rationally, it makes a, a great deal of sense, particularly considering who he ends up marrying, the political implications of that. Uh, and of course, that's, that's the, the next issue. If you're going to get divorced, 
what are you going to do uh, to replace uh, your your wife? And and the first option is, as we all all probably know, was was. Uh, well, I suppose you, 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 you could argue Marie Valeska, after all, they had a son and, and so on, but, but that would have been a, a very scandalous, even by French standards, for Napoleon to, to marry his Polish mistress would have been you know, a great scandal, and, and that simply wasn't going to, to happen, not the least of which reasons was the fact that she was still at least you know, technically married to, to, her, her, to her ancient husband. So the first place Napoleon looks, of course, is Russia. Russia is an ally of uh, Napoleon. Uh, he and the Tsar have a pretty doggone good personal relationship at, at this stage. Uh, in the war with, uh, with Austria, the, the Wagram campaign, Russia doesn't do nearly as much as, as might have been hoped. But still, they've got, a, they've got a pretty good relation. And, you know, the I idea of tying by marriage, by blood, the French Empire and the enormous Russian Empire, thus sandwiching the rest of Europe, save, of course, for the Iberian Peninsula. Ooh, there I am. I mentioned it. Sorry. But, uh, uh, you know, the rest of Europe, Austria, Prussia, you know, etc., they're all going to be sandwiched between two enormously powerful and now very closely allied people or countries, empires, you know, this, this has huge implications for, for uh, everything. And it might very well lead to peace uh, because at this point it's going to be hard for Austria or Prussia uh, or anybody else to take sides with England. It might very well isolate the British and force them into peace as well. But, as we all, and I'll, maybe Bob, you can pick it up, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, it's, and to some extent, you know, and, and as you, you mentioned Russia, but his choices are very slim as, as yes. far as picking a, an empress. Uh, to some extent, you know, picking Russia, is, it, it, that is obviously one of the most powerful groups, one of the largest groups, but historically, his choices... No one is going to be happy with them in France at all. I mean, you take the the wedding of uh, um, Marie Antoinette to the future Louis the Sixteenth. I mean, Austria had always been an enemy of France prior to the change in the treaty that ends up bringing her to France. Um, Germans certainly have always been uh, enemies of France. I mean, their foreign policy for four hundred years was keep the Germans killing each other. Uh, then that would leave leave the Russians. Uh, they certainly wouldn't end up going to, to Spain at that point. But the Austrians seems like, you know, the the Austrians are used to. I mean, the Habsburgs grew by taking their very prolific family and marrying them off to the the noble of importance at at any given opportunity. So it it seemed like probably the the closest. Uh, group to deal with, and of course she was probably the most eligible, of, at least age-wise, of of some of the others. Even though she'd been brought up in a court to despise him, but he'd beaten the Austrians enough. He practically had his own place in the Schönbrunn Palace anyway. Well, sure. Anyway, to 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 finish up a little bit with Russia, there was a a woman. And by the way, parenthetically, and just I'll mention it now because in my senility, I might forget to mention it later. One of the, the, the interesting things 
would be what if there had been an eligible woman in Great Britain and somehow, you know, Napoleon had been able to woo her. I mean, talk, talk, talk uh, an earth shattering possibility. But anyway, uh, obviously that 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 wasn't, you know, a, a factor. But what a what a an amazing story that would have made Russia didn't work out for a, a couple of reasons. You know, first of all, uh, the nobles of, of Russia were really not very happy with Napoleon. They, they did not like the, the execution of the Duc d'Anguin. They didn't trust Napoleon. They didn't like the French. Uh, and, uh, and then there was the family. The family just didn't like Napoleon at all. Uh, the Tsar's mother uh, thought Napoleon was boorish, and and uh, and so what they did, they were diplomatic, if if you will. They they uh, they gave excuses. Well, she's not old enough. She was only uh, uh, the, the Tsar Alexander's sister Anna was only 15 years old, and that's just uh, uh, too young. Uh, you can't marry her until she's 18. Come back in three years and let's talk. Well, Napoleon is not going to wait three years to come up with a new empress. And, of course, the Russians understood that. That's why they came up with this ruse. And, uh, and so Napoleon is, is very disappointed, I think. I really think Napoleon had most of all wanted to, to, to marry into the Russian Empire for both strategic and personal reasons. As you point out, Bob, the, the, the Russians and the Austrians and the Germans, none of them, you know, were, were exactly natural allies. Uh, but, but Russia was the best ally going at the time. Uh, and the, relation, the personal relationship between Alexander and Emperor Napoleon was, was fairly good, certainly as compared with the relationships with any of the other rulers of the day. And so, had the Russians gone along with this, I think Napoleon would have been delighted. And again, you can play the old what if. What if Russia and France had been tied together by this, this marriage? Uh, but it doesn't happen, and so now Napoleon turns to the, the next possibility, which is the Habsburg uh, Empire of Austria, where uh, 18-year-old Marie Louise the daughter of the emperor uh, is a very, very eligible young lady. And Bob, you, you mentioned in passing the the uh, the fact that uh, uh, the 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 Habsburgs were extraordinarily uh, prolific. If you shook our, our, our you know, if you your hands, they might get pregnant. Yeah, yeah. There's an old story that a lot of the European, the other European powers, looked down upon. Uh, the Habsburgs as being poor because they'd procreated themselves in the poverty to some extent, having to share it amongst all their kids. Well, I'd, I'd like to be so impoverished that I had to live at the Schönbrunn instead of uh, Versailles. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about all this, Cameron? <laughs> I do have some quotes, though, that uh, I was going to read. Um, we, we were talking had, half an hour ago. I had a feeling you did. <laughs> we were talking at some stage half an hour ago about uh, the end of the marriage to Josephine, and I have just some, as I like to do, some letters 
Napoleon uh, writes to Josephine, this is in uh, 30th of November, 1809, when he called her in. I still love you, he said, but in politics there is no heart, only head. Which sounds very cold, but then a month after they parted, he wrote to her, I much want to see you, but I must be sure that you are strong and not weak. I am a little weak too, and that makes me terribly unhappy. So, you know, I, I think that the way that he... Um, uh, is perceived sometimes during this whole affair as fairly cold and fairly heartless and he dumped Josephine because she couldn't bury him a child. But I think that uh, the three of us agree that it probably wasn't that clear cut. As Bob said before, he could have made the decision a lot earlier. In fact, I've recently been reading volume three of Max Gallo's novelization, which I very much enjoy, I must say. Have you guys read the Max Gallo books? I've read a couple. I never have time to read. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is really good, and it's sort of dealing with this. It's dealing around 1806, actually, and Maria Valesqua, and uh, and he receives notification in 1806 that Louise Catherine Eleanor Denuel de la Plaine in Paris, who I think he'd been set up with. Yeah, that's his surrogate mistress. Yeah, his other one. I think it was uh, one of his sisters uh, who'd set him up with her. Uh, it's it's uh, it's Carolyn. Carolyn, that's right. Yeah, it was a friend of hers. It was a friend of hers, and and uh, and Marat, her husband, um, highly recommended her. She was probably Uh-oh. his mistress too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they actually their their documentation show that while she was with Napoleon, um, Joachim Marat was also visiting her. Whether he's trying to help help the old boy out or not remains to be seen. But <laughs> well, it's uh, yeah, and, and uh, obviously Napoleon's family all detested Josephine and were always trying to yeah you know, from the very get go. His mother and his uh, brothers and sisters were all trying to get Josephine out of the picture and the fact that he stuck with her for so long. Anyway, so the point is that in 1806, uh, his Parisian mistress has uh, an illegitimate child, which is his, uh, the Charles Count Lyon. So he knew from 1806 that he could actually father a child and the way that Gallo portrays it in the book, I don't know if there's uh, evidence to support this, but portrays it that Josephine had been suggesting to Napoleon that he might be sterile. And he knows definitively, he believes, although from what you're saying, Bob, it could have been Murat's child. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, they uh, he believes that he can father child from 1806. So it's a, yeah, it's now it's three years later when he finally finishes things with Josephine. Yeah, like, and, and by the way, again, Maria Valeska's child. There's no question that was Napoleon. So, but yeah, that was no question. That wasn't until 1810, though. Interestingly, I mean, uh, the Count Valeski Alexander was born on the 4th of May 1810, which was a couple of months after he got married by proxy to Marie Louise. Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, did he have any more after that? Any more illegitimate children that we know of? There's, I know, uh, Wikipedia mentions a few other possible uh, offspring. Any can, that you believe? I think that the, the, you know, Alexander is really the last one. I've, I've saw that those note, note, little notes in the Wikipedia, and those are really out there. The, the, most of the standard works on on that to- topic will not claim either one of those people, but. You know, mm. 
there's there's only four or five hundred thousand books on Napoleon. So now <laughs> I, I think with you just stick with the the ones that are that have been around for a while. You know, and I think David, Alexander is definitely the last one. David's written half of those, haven't you, David? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've 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 made a very modest dent in them. Uh, but uh, and I've got a new one coming out sometime in the in the next uh, six months or so. But but uh, no, I, I, I there's about three hundred and to three hundred and fifty thousand books on Napoleon right now, and and uh, I've written maybe five of them. So that's not a very big dent. They're good. They're the key ones. The rest are all just filler. So well, yes, clear, clearly I've got the best ones. Yes. yes. <laughs> so with Marie Louise, uh, Bob, to me this looks like. A fairly cold, arranged marriage. I mean, I genuinely believe that Napoleon was in love with Josephine. I believe that he was uh, in love with Marie Valesqua. I can never say that name. Valesqua. I really struggle with that. Valesca. Valesca, thank you. But Marie Louise, even though he seemed to develop a friendly relationship with her, I never really got the sense that... He, he really had deep-seating feelings for her. In the letters that I read, they're certainly not the passionate letters that he wrote in his youth, are they? No, it, and, you know, he's he, he's kind of fascinated with her initially like a new toy, you know, because he, he couldn't wait for her to get to Paris. So he goes out to the countryside, standing there in the... In the, by the cemetery in the rain, waiting for a carriage to come by, and then startles everybody by jumping in the carriage, and they go to Compiègne instead of where they're supposed to go, and they end up sleeping together. Evening, but I think the, the the thing that he loved about her was not her, was the son. I, I think if you look the the way he had he adored his son, that that was the real key to his relationship with her. Now, she had been brought up to basically believe that Napoleon was practically the devil himself, mm-hmm. uh, so it wasn't easy to convince her, that, so particularly since the 30 years difference in, in ages between them, um, that I have to do what I have to do for my country. But she, shortly after they were married, I think five days after they were married, she sends a letter back home saying how well that she's being treated and that her husband is much more than she had even hoped for and so i think there was the, at least an initial infatuation with each other particularly for the first year and then of course he gets uh, unfortunately everything falls apart after that and he's going to be well, I, tied up elsewhere and, and you're right part of the part of the problem with the relationship and it would be a problem with anyone's relationship is you know not long after after the, the the honeymoon is over, you know he's gone, uh, and 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 of course the marriage gets involved in some of the political things that are going on. But I, I I'm not so sure, Bob, that I, I, I that I agree. I think Napoleon, while certainly the love for his son, the King of Rome, uh, you know Napoleon Francois Joseph Charles, is is the the main thing. After all, it was the reason for all of this. But I, I really think that he developed uh, a, a genuine affection and, 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 if you will, love for, for Marie Louise. Let me give you an example. You know, uh, when, when, when the King of Rome was born, the doctors informed Napoleon 
that there were problems, medical problems, and I'm not a gynecologist, so I, I can't tell you the details, but, and there was a possibility that the doctors would have to choose between saving the, the, the baby or saving the wife, Marie Louise. And without hesitation, even though all of this was done to produce an heir and a dead wife and a live heir would still fulfill that goal, without hesitation, Napoleon said, save Marie Louise. He was prepared to sacrifice the son and recognizing that when you have a problem birth like that, if you, if you save the wife, it's entirely possible that that because of the nature of things that, that she will not be able to bear children again. And I'm not at all sure he could do yet another divorce and another search because Bob points out very, very correctly, there's limited choices out there. Uh, so even though this might completely destroy his quest for an heir, he immediately says, save her. If it comes to that choice, save her. Well, luckily for everybody, uh, the choice didn't have to be made. The birth goes okay, the child is born, it's a son, Marie Louise is, is, is fine, she remains quite healthy, uh, and uh, you know, the, the crisis passes. But that to me has always represented Napoleon's feelings. Uh, and people who say he's anti-woman and this, that, and the other thing, doesn't, didn't ever really love Marie Louise, I think are, are, are bypassing that, that very important episode. That tells you a lot about the nature of the man, the nature of Napoleon. Just remind me, had he even met her before the marriage was arranged? I don't I think, think so, unless it was briefly at some court function. Yeah, at some court function. Because she was only um, 18 when the marriage was arranged, so the last time he'd been in Austria, uh, she would have been, you know, 15. Or not, you know, and he, he may have met her when he was in Vienna at some stage. I've never actually read anything that says that they met before. I mean, I suppose it's possible she was there as a kid somewhere along the line, but but he never met her in any in any way that would have any particular relevance to his opinion of her or whatever. It would have been simply, ah, yes, princess, how are you, kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, you'll do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was very much the the the. The, the, the manner of the times, right, in royal families. Uh, as you know, David, I was just uh, doing a podcast earlier today with our friend who introduced us, Staten Rabin, and she was talking to me about this new book that she's written about the Romanovs and uh, the, the February Revolution and what happened to the Romanovs. And we were talking about, you know, the arranged marriages uh, in the Russian family and coming down from Queen Victoria and the relationship to Prince Philip. So it was very much the way that it was done back then. You, you weren't supposed to meet and fall in love and get married. It was very much the political marriage. So anyway, they get married and via proxy. Now, this is the other thing that I've always found quite interesting. Uh, they got married by proxy. He sent one of his men to go and uh, take his place in the wedding ceremony originally. Yeah, Marshal Berthier. Uh, the, uh, Francis didn't want to go, from what I or from what I understand. You know, I, I think one of the issues, too, that comes into play here is the fact that although Napoleon is crowned emperor of France, European monarchies consider him 
a usurper who's taken the throne. He doesn't have any royal blood in him whatsoever. Uh, you know, the, the son of the revolution and whatever. And so that kind of figures in perhaps a little bit. Of course, poor Francis, you know, he's used to giving up the keys to Vienna on, on many occasions, but he didn't want to come to Paris for a, for a wedding. But they picked old Marshal Berthier to stand in. And I believe yeah, yeah. At, at, the, at the wedding there in the Louvre that it's either Talleyrand or uh, Schwarzenberg that stand in for a, a little bit for the... Uh, for the marriage there as well, they were certainly the official representatives. I think it was Schwarzenberg, but but yeah, I mean the, the whole thing is 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 uh, very formal, and 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 there's clearly not a huge enthusiasm in some respects. It's also it also has to be said, I think that the the Austrians were actually fairly pleased with this arrangement. Uh, they were pretty happy, I feel, to be allied this way with France. It was a, a, a way to tie themselves to a star that was clearly, in their view, still on the ascendancy. Napoleon was, was uh, you know, the most powerful person in Europe. France was the most powerful nation. Uh, uh, the Iberian uh, campaign in Spain and Portugal had not yet really shown itself to be the problem that it becomes, uh, the Achilles heel or, or whatever. So from the standpoint of foreign policy, I'll tell you who was happy about this was Metternich. You know, Count von Metternich, uh, the minister of Austria, was one of the, the movers and shakers in this deal, and he was extremely pleased to get Napoleon tied to Austria. Because even though he may very well have rather cynically figured that in time those two nations, those two empires would be a loggerheads again, at least in the relatively near term, this would assure that they would have not only peace, but favorable trade status uh, and, and, and other benefits that would that would accrue. So from the standpoint of Metternich, who was one of the original authors of the concept of realpolitik, uh, you know, realistic politics, I mean, never mind, you know, whether we like Napoleon, think he's a usurper or whatever, Napoleon is, is the name of the game right now, and it's in our self-interest to be tied to Napoleon. So from the standpoint of the politics of the day for Austria, it was a very, very good move. Now, whether the French people or the Austrian people thought a lot of it, you know, is, is, is hard to say. My question to you, Bob, would be, um, I'm curious what you think, if, if, now that you look at this whole thing, divorce Josephine Marie Louis, Marie Louis, Louis, Marie Louise, do you think Napoleon made the right choice, or do you think he should have stayed uh, with, uh, with, with Josephine? Well, that's a, that's an interesting interesting point there. The the um, and it can it can go really either way. I I still think that in the in the long run that he probably would have been better off to have stayed with Josephine. And I only make that statement for the simple fact that you know Austria proved to be a you know a, a very unwilling ally at the very 
very least. You know, they still deserted him after the after the Russian campaign and and joined in with the the next uh, next coalition when it would have expected them maybe to have have stayed put. So other than getting a son out of the deal, I don't think Napoleon really. Uh, or France that that much gained. I, I agree wholeheartedly that Austria gained a lot because it didn't have to worry about anything until they chose to switch sides at the uh, at the appropriate moment. But then again, you know, you go back to the issue of would an heir have made any difference um, since he's overthrown and has to abdicate anyhow? Uh, but I, I still think that he's probably better off staying with Josephine. Because it, uh, just because the political uh, issues in the end uh, don't, just don't turn out. Mm. And, and I, by the way, I completely agree. Uh, I don't know that there's any way he could own it. Because, as I said earlier in the program, this is one of those things that seems like a good idea at the time. You know, having an heir seemed good. After all, that's... You know, you look back in the Bourbon dynasty and all the other dynasties, the the primary duty of the wife of the king or of the emperor was to produce a male heir, and it was the male heirs who were more or less automatically made the, the you know, the new king. The king is dead, long live the king. Napoleon had reason to believe it would it would work out that way for him. As we all know, in 1814 and again in 1815, there was darn little thought given to putting Napoleon's son on the throne. Napoleon's son was declared Napoleon II in 1815, and we'll talk about that a lot later. In fact, that's a, a very central to my next book coming out, which period from Waterloo to when he to, to when Napoleon surrenders uh, to the British, but but otherwise, uh, I agree with Bob. Uh, if you look back at it in hindsight, and again, Napoleon may not have obviously could not have had this ability in hindsight, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. But looking back in hindsight, it's just a darn shame. Well, the, I disagree. I think Josephine the, was a skanky old hoe. <laughs> With with oh my. with black well, teeth, come on. Well, first first of all, I object to the term, but 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 secondly, uh, you know, yeah, it's Josephine accurate, was no saint. No, but but she and Napoleon had settled into, as we talked earlier in the program, a really good relationship, and frankly, uh, I think the people of France would have been much happier, and Napoleon would have been happier with Joseph and from the geopolitical standpoint it didn't seem to have made that much difference Napoleon may or may not have gained a couple or three years of peace with Austria out of it uh, he did gain the son now from the personal standpoint this is the kicker obviously uh, Napoleon deeply loved his son and and maybe from a personal standpoint it was worth giving up Josephine to get the son. And he did have a, a, a love for, for Marie Louise. But overall, I don't know. I, I think he'd have been just as well off, and France would have been just as well off if they didn't have to go through all of that. Uh, and should. Josephine would have been a lot better off. She would have lived a heck of a lot longer because she almost certainly would not have, you know, 
done done what she did at that party, you know, with the 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 water on the blouse kind of thing and catch a chill and died. And and she would have lived possibly quite long, and uh, and who knows if Napoleon still if everything else goes as normal, Napoleon's defeated goes to exile. Josephine would have been far more likely to follow Napoleon into exile at Elba or Saint Helene than Marie Louise. Marie Louise, again, as we'll as we'll learn in a later episode, <clears throat> does not give Napoleon. The personal support in his, you know, in his downfall that would have been tremendously good for Napoleon. If Napoleon, let's say Napoleon still ends up at Saint Helena, but there's no political reason for the Allies not to allow his wife to go with him. Napoleon on Saint Helena with Josephine is going to be a far happier person and probably live longer, you know, and and just generally better existence than than he did. So so I, I've always regretted that Napoleon divorced Josephine uh, in, in spite of all of the, the, the benefits and the presumed benefits from, from what happened. I've got a quote here from uh, Metternich about Maria Louise where he describes her as more ugly than pretty, she has a very fine figure. Oh, she did. <laughs> but she, but the more ugly than pretty? I'm not sure. I haven't got who he wrote this to. I, I assume he wasn't trying to sell her here to Napoleon by saying that, but uh, that was apparently one of the, the way he described her. More ugly than pretty. Well, the images I've seen of Marie Louise, and I've got a lot of images of her on my in my own collection, the snuff boxes and so on. She looks quite attractive. They're, they're probably designed to make her look good. Yeah. But, but yeah, she, she was good looking. You know, Napoleon is... Is what forty something? I think she's forty nine when they get married. And pardon, forty nine when they get married. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I get in trouble with my wife among other people when I when I make comments like this. But let's face it, this this guy is by the standards of the day getting pretty long in the tooth, and he gets an attractive eighteen year old bride. It's no wonder he w- went up to Compiègne. And, and and wanted to 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 get to know her better. Uh, it's it's not a bit surprising. So you know, in many ways, he was he was, you know, he was very pleased with this relationship. And it became more than that. It became more than the dirty old man and the, and the cute young lady. Uh, it really did work into a very nice relationship. But Marie Louise didn't have the savvy that Josephine did. You know, she played the role as best she could, but she didn't have the the worldly understanding and, by the way, the political understanding that Josephine did. She was not nearly as good at knowing who to invite to parties and what to do and who to smooze up to and so on. She was a dutiful wife, and she really tried to be a good wife, and she really was. But she was also very pliable. You know, her father... And Metternich in 1814 and, and, and beyond, you know, manipulated her horribly. And, and but, it's but, just a doggone but, shame. But what was her, I mean, okay, so we, we're jumping ahead a few years here now and, and we'll yes, probably we talk about this in more detail. But we'll, we'll, this is sort of the Marie Louise episode, I guess. I, I can also put myself in her shoes. Whilst I think it was a horrible betrayal, 
uh, for her to not follow Napoleon into exile, particularly because he did, never got to see his son again, which, as a father, we can all imagine what that must have been like. Um, particularly, I mean, he's a Corsican father. <laughs> we know we know how the Italians uh, feel about their offspring, but uh, it. it yeah, I can also put myself in her shoes. She was what? Uh, she must have been in her mid-20s at that stage. It's obvious that her husband's gone. He's not coming back. I mean, no one expected him to come back from Elba, uh, let alone St. Helena. Uh, you know, you're a, a royal princess queen in your mid-20s. Are you really going to follow this guy into exile? On a, you know, in the middle of nowhere? It's a pretty big call. Well, well the irony, cousin. though, Cameron, is that I think she would have had her father not, you know, mooshed her back into to her own exile, if you will, in Vienna, and then, you know, recruited someone to seduce her. And again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but <laughs> but uh, I, I think that she... You think she would have? She, she cared for, for Napoleon. I've got this um, other quote. We, we mentioned before, I think... Bob, you mentioned that Napoleon rode out to meet her and uh, whipped her away as soon as she got to France, took her off to Compagnie where they slept together. Law, uh, apparently, according to the law of France, she wasn't uh, would not be his wife officially until after the civil marriage, and he shouldn't have slept with her officially until after that point in time, which led Lord Liverpool to refer to the uh, consummation of their relationship as more a rape than a wooing. Oh, well, yeah, well, that, that's typical of what you would expect the other people to say. Uh, <laughs> she supposedly had such a good time, she came back for another round that evening. It's a story that he told, and there's never been any discussion to, to refute it, that uh, she just had a wonderful time and said, well, like, can we do that again? So uh, it's one of those cases. It's I just wish that she had kept the journal as detailed as Josephine did so we could get these good little juicy tidbits um, straightened out, but I I think that uh, you know it was I know everybody was expecting to have a nice little party and Carolyn was unhappy and the other people were unhappy because they went off on their own in the end of their little room. But uh, I am her- I am shocked. <laughs> I am shocked, shocked. I tell you, with the tenor of this conversation, the same the same book that I got the Lord Liverpool quote from, which for the uh, members of the audience that have been asking for a bibliography, which uh, something that Bob has always done very well at the end of his episodes. This is a book called "In Search of Two Characters: Some Intimate Aspects of Napoleon and His Son" by Dorma Creston, published in London, Macmillan and Company, nineteen forty five. But um, he says, uh, speaking of and I think we can tell a lot about Napoleon from the letters that Marie Louise wrote back to Austria because she had no real reason to lie that I can figure. Um, not long after arriving in France, she says she writes back home and says uh, how Napoleon had turned out to be much nicer than she had expected, how he made her stay in bed each morning till two o'clock on account of her cough, and how, quote, I find he improves a great deal when one knows him more closely. There is something very taking and eager about him, end quote. The book goes on to say he wove round her inexperience all the ardours that her social position invoked in him, all the seductions of the accomplished lover he had become, and deliciously surprised a healthy, highly sexed girl, she succumbed just as he had intended she should succumb. 
On this, their honeymoon at Compagnie, Napoleon naturally kept the less pleasing aspects of his character to himself. Marie-Louise, delighted at finding an enchanting lover where she had expected a monster, fell into an enthusiasm over him, an enthusiasm which, before long, was to be decidedly moderated. As for Napoleon, he chose to consider himself as now in a position to refer to Louis XVI as not only my predecessor, but my poor uncle. And further, to emphasise this affiliation of himself to the Bourbon family, he granted a pension to the nurse of Louis XVI and another to the nurse of Louis' children. I kind of like that, him referring to Louis XVI as my poor uncle. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. Related yeah, through marriage. Great, that's a great quote. So um, I guess that kind of brings us to the birth of the King of Rome. We've, we've touched on it a few times, but... The King of Rome was born, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, no, did I mention it? What, what? March twentieth of eighteen eleven. Okay, so uh, pretty much a year after they got married by proxy, which was March eleventh, eighteen ten. She uh, and the the official ceremony happened April first. So they didn't muck around. They got straight to the business. Essentially, well, she she was very prolific. She was a a Habsburg after all, and uh, <laughs> I mean that's that's one of the advantages of marrying a Habsburg is you you know you 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 kiss their hand and 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 shortly thereafter they announce that they're pregnant. And so the the King of Rome was uh, his his full name was Napoleon Francois Joseph Charles, but really? was known from birth as the King of Rome. And uh, uh, should we talk much about him? I mean, he, Napoleon really didn't get to spend that much time with him, did he? I mean, we, we well, I mean, it, that, well, for, you know, for the first year they've they spent a lot of time together. I always enjoy the uh, his enthusiasm on the birth of the child. I've got one of I've got one of uh, Frederick Maison's uh, first editions on uh, on the on the boy which has a simile of the birth certificate in it. But, he, you know, they clean the child up after he's born. He runs outside with it to show everybody his, his new son. And the crowd is saying, get that child back indoors, you know, cover him up. He'll get sick. You know, his, his enthusiasm is, uh, is incredible over, over it. He always loved children anyway, uh, even before he had children. Um, he, he loved to play with Hortense's children, the other, the other uh, brothers and sisters' children, and they would one of the things that they would do is they'd like to play horsey, climb on his back, and he would crawl around on the floor. And there's an incident where one of the British ambassadors comes over to see him, and they have him sitting out in the in the lobby for a while. And finally, they come in and they say, "Look, the ambassador's been sitting there forever. He needs to come in." And says, "Oh, I'm having fun with the, with these children. Go ahead and bring him in. I'll talk to him while I'm down here playing." And so the ambassador sees him with these kids climbing on his back and whatever, and writes back to and that uh, it was more proof that he was unworthy to be a monarch in Europe, seeing him on all fours running around with children, uh, beating on him and riding his back. So uh, I, I've you know, I spent a lot of time with the child. and I understand several times he would you know, go in at night and sit by the cradle and just look at him. You know, we, we obviously know as well that uh, Napoleon uh, in exile in St. Helena be became very close to the Balcom children, not only Betsy, but the other kids as well, and loved to entertain them and tell them stories and chase them around. So, and Which, again, is, is a side of Napoleon's character that, that 
the uh, British historians would rather we forget. I mean, that to me, that tells you a lot of how people treat animals and kids tends to tell you a lot about uh, their, their, their character. And we, we've talked about Napoleon and his relationship with Josephine's dog before, <laughs> David. But uh, <laughs> as you say, Bob, very, very truly. he Better luck with Maria Louise's dog. Right, we hope. Uh, but uh, back to the King of Rome. Um, he was born March 1811. Now, Napoleon left for Russia in June of 1812. So he got to spend about a year with his son and then, as far as I can recall, never saw him again. Uh, were they still in Paris by the time he got back from Russia? I don't think they were. I think they'd evacuated. She'd gone to Vienna, hadn't she? Oh no no he he, no, no. he comes he comes back in 1812 and she's she's there with his son she's and there? there's still the 1813 and 1814 campaign she doesn't leave until Paris is in danger in 1814 uh, and 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 she actually wanted to stay and again we're getting way ahead of ourselves so our listeners will hear this again she actually wanted to stay in Paris in 1814. King, it was Joseph, Joseph the brother, who, who Napoleon yeah. had left right. in charge of Paris, who insisted that the government evacuate. And by the way, our your friend and mine, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand, was was involved in all of this. The swine, uh, but uh, <laughs> excellent uh, comment. <laughs> yes, but, you know I've always liked Napoleon's comedy. You know he's a shit in a silk stocking, uh, but but uh, and as by the way, with a, a recent. Uh, uh, appeals court ruling on on what can be said on television. I gather I can get away with that comment, but but uh, the uh, they were there and and Marie Louise wanted to stay in Paris and and rally the people of Paris in 1814. I, I'm sorry for the little lapse there, uh, but uh, uh, Joseph, you know, sort of mooshed her out and then and then she ends up waltzing off to to uh, under the influence of her father. Uh, to to uh, to to Vienna, and we'll we'll talk about all the details of that when we get that episode. Mm. But I, I, it's 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 certainly wrong to say that he didn't see his son. He saw he last saw his son sometime in 1814. Okay, but well, he, he, even if he had, he, he wouldn't have seen him much. I guess is is kind of the point here. When he was about oh, a true, year old, true. Napoleon went to Russia. Uh, he got back from Russia and may have spent another six or twelve months, and uh, it, it wasn't a lot of time to. I mean, the, the kid didn't know his dad, I guess, which Very is true. Which is quite Very sad. Very true. Now, explain That's why exactly. he was called the King of Rome. Well, I mean, this on this courtesy title of the King of Rome. Why was he given that at birth? You know, Bob. Anyone? Well, Bob? I was trying. <laughs> that that is. Well, I, I always thought it was due to the fact that that was uh, the capital of, of Italy, and of course Napoleon always had the, the special uh, attachment towards uh, the family's original background, and it was where the Pope was in charge, and uh, and he used he used that. But uh, that was all that I was, you know, I, I'm really not that well up on that particular aspect. I, I I've read that it was. You know the honorary title that he was given, the the, the courtesy title. But I, I've never really understood why he was given the title of King of Rome at, at birth. Uh, I was hoping that one of you guys could explain that to me. Well, I think you're exactly right. Both of you are right. It's it was a courtesy title. Uh, I don't know that there was a particular 
in the forest. Uh, other uh, other than you know, you want to give your if you're an emperor, you want to give your son uh, some kind of a uh, of a title and give him dominion over something. And so he decided to call him the king of Rome. But it was it was uh, you know, I don't I don't know beyond that why why it was done. It'd be a, an interesting research project, and I invite any of our listeners if if they have come across a more specific reason for why this title. Uh, feel free to uh, to send us emails or do a posting and, and and let us know. But I'm like Bob. I I admit I'm I'm not sure of a of a of a specific reason why why this was done. And I guess we should uh, we don't want to leave people in suspense. Uh, they want to know what happened to the King of Rome, uh, Napoleon, the young Napoleon II. Well, uh, let's leave them in suspense. No, we can't do that. It's cruel. <laughs> Because uh, I remember well, it's just part of the tra- <laughs> part of the tragedy at the at the end is uh, you know the is when we want this eighteen thirty two is when he ends up dying of TB of tuberculosis. He dies but, of TB. Yeah. It was, a, it was uh, a after having been raised as an Austrian prince, never allowed to learn French, never allowed to see his father again or to communicate with him. Uh, as, as Bob says, it's it's a tragedy. It's 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 really. One of the great tragedies of this of this epoch, uh, and and you know you, you you wonder again what if what what if he had lived if he had never gotten TB would he somewhere along the line have have uh, ha- have made a move I mean we all know that Napoleon the third ruled for some nineteen years you know Napoleon's nephew what if his son had been available uh, it's an interesting thing but of course his son was was as moved as possible, as far as possible, from from anything French, anything Napoleonic. Uh, his mother becomes a Duchess of Parma and so on. She marries this fellow who seduced her on, on, under orders of, of the emperor. Uh, again, we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but but it's, it's one of those tragedies. Uh, Napoleon doesn't see his son again after he goes into exile, and then the son dies. Uh... But uh, you know, well, they even rename him. He's the Duke de Reichstock when he goes back to uh, to Austria. I mean, it's he's talking about he's like the man in the iron mask, except he's a gilded cage. Well, he's a very gilded there. cage, exactly, yeah. Bob. Very gilded cage. But yeah, you're right. He's raised as an Austrian prince, the Duke de Reichstead, and and one of the things in my collection is a little gilt uh, uh, statue from Austria, uh, ivory and gold, and so on, labeled the Duke de Reichstead, and and you know, it's kind of exile. We 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 on one level we might we might say, sure, why not? I could live with that. But it was it was very melancholy for him, I suspect, and it was tragically melancholy for Napoleon. And again, in this um, book that I've got, uh, the search of in search of two characters, they, they talk about the fact that um, yeah, he wasn't. When you say he was raised as an Austrian prince uh, and the Duke de Reichstadt, he wasn't. Um, treated very well by the Austrian royal family or by his mother, really. I mean, he was a, a sickly child all of his life and was kind of treated almost, I think, as like the, the bastard child of the monster by the sounds of it. He was, I, I think they were probably embarrassed about the fact that they'd given off their daughter to Napoleon in the first place and he was the offspring of that uh, union that nobody really wanted to talk about. But what makes it even more tragic for the poor kid is he... 
was al- allowed to read everything about his father. This book says none of them, uh, talking about the uh, St. Helena Chronicles, none of them was kept from him. Omira, Lacasses, Gogol, Anamaki, he read them all. It must have been a most peculiar experience for him after this seemingly endless separation from his father, with no word or sound issuing from him, to meet him once more in this extraordinarily intimate way in those vital, if prejudiced, memoirs, to discover his views on a hundred subjects, to hear him in his moments of persiflage there's a word I don't know and most poignant of all not only to realise how all these years he had remained closely in Napoleon's heart but actually to receive a long personal message from him in Napoleon's final advice and admonition I mean Napoleon as we know had been writing letters to Marie Louise and his son all of the years that he was from Elba through the hundred days and then in St. Helena but they were kept I don't think Murray Louise, they certainly kept from his son. Murray Louise, I don't think, didn't even receive the letters, did she? Weren't they sort of taken by the uh, Austrian gatekeepers? To the best of my yeah, knowledge? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, uh, I would assume that they probably might still be hidden in a box somewhere, but uh, they could have also been taken out and burned as well. Well, and some of them have been published, but, but I kind of disagree, uh, Cameron, just a little bit. Uh, I don't know if they, if the Austrians kept the King of Rome away from Napoleon so much because they were sort of embarrassed that, that all of this took place. I think what they were afraid of was, was, was political. I think they were afraid that if the King of Rome were ever able to unite, and for that matter, if, if Marie Louise was ever able to unite with Napoleon, even in exile, that that would be a politically potent force that a lot of people in France would say, give us the king of Rome, give us Napoleon's son. Okay, Napoleon's defeated, but you know, we have an heir to the throne. We have Marie Louise. Marie Louise can rule as regent. This, after all, was one of the ideas that we'll talk about in 1815. And the, the Allies did not want that to happen. And so they, they made a very political, it was a very cruel decision personally, and they may or may not have had any remorse over that, I don't know, but it was a very political decision that you cannot allow the, the political power of, of the Princess of Austria and the even the deposed emperor of France and the son to to be together because there's too much potential uh, for political maneuvering. You've got to separate them. You've got to remove Marie Louise and the son from any possibility of influencing French politics. That's why uh, Metternich gets. Uh, Marie Louise back and and her son as quickly as possible back into uh, to to Austria, and he has to maneuver her. You know, he he, he and, and Marie Louise writes to her father in eighteen fourteen. And again, let's let's hold off on that until we get the, to that episode. But Marie Louise is not completely dumb. You know, she realizes what's happening and she doesn't like it, and she she tries to fight against it. But she's ultimately powerless against her father. 
Uh, and, uh, and of course, obviously, <clears throat> the king of Rome at that point is too young to be involved in anything. So, well, can anyways, you imagine, so we're, we're uh, imagine, the- imagine this, you know, he's, they're, they're very fortunate he died in 1832. Oh, yes. You know, can you imagine that he, had he lived a, a, a normal lifespan? Well, you have 1832, you have the French Revolution of 1832, you have initial upheaval there. Eventually, you're going to get the 1848. Of course, it might have been a little competition for Louis Napoleon uh, Bonaparte well, later on, but they're very well, fortunate well, he died at 21. Well, Louis Napoleon would have would have simply been one of those people supporting uh, the, the King of Rome. I mean, there's no question. You're absolutely right, and I suggested earlier, if the King of Rome had lived, he would have been the heir, not Louis Napoleon. And right. Yeah, he might very well have become emperor of France, and and it might have happened before before forty eight and fifty, and it might even have happened as you suggest, Bob, in in thirty two, uh, uh, with with that revolution when when uh, we get Louis Philippe, uh, it's uh, it's it's impossible to say. It's one of those what ifs. Yeah, that make make for wonderful conversation. And of course, the, the the Bonaparte clan, what was left of the Bonaparte clan after Napoleon's exile, were uh, prevented from having any contact with uh, the King of Rome. And I've got this uh, great section in this uh, same book. When Reichstadt was 19, one member of the Bonaparte family, a niece of Napoleon, did succeed from sheer youthful bounce in getting in touch with that family mystery around whom the thoughts of all the Bonapartes circulated. This young woman was Napoleone, Countess Camerata, a daughter of Napoleon's eldest sister, Elisa Bacchiocchi. Bacchiocchi. This blooming young woman of 24 lived on horseback and was chiefly remarkable for her devotion to Napoleon and for her violent temper. She often dressed as a man, signed herself Napoleon, and tried in everything to ape her uncle. In other words, Napoleone was a goose, according to this book. But she a did goose. A goose is what the book says, which tells yeah, you. How tells, that mean? It tells you a lot about uh, the, the 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 side of <laughs> that this book sits on, but. Um, Apparently she did, uh, it says, When staying with her Aunt Carolyn at her chateau of Froschdorf, she had one day driven into Baden, where she suddenly caught sight of Reichstadt, all young elegance in his felt Austrian uniform. In an instant, she was leaning over the side of the carriage, shouting out, Aren't you ashamed to be wearing the Austrian uniform? And uh, she got to meet with him a few other times, but nothing came of it. Now, I've got a final quote, and we should wrap this thing up, because I think we're nearly 90 minutes long here. It says that... At least. My <laughs> clock says an hour and 27. <laughs> well, that's nearly 90 minutes, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it says uh, Franz, as uh, the Duke was known in, during his Austrian years, apparently after the... It says upon the death of his stepfather, Nieperg. Is that how you pronounce it? Nieperg? Yeah, something like that. This is, the one-eyed uh, guy. <laughs> yeah, the, the old gentleman who uh, seduced Marie Louise, and she married him four months, I think, after Napoleon's death. Uh, uh, upon the death of his stepfather and the revelation that his mother had borne two illegitimate children to him prior to their marriage, Franz said to his friend, Prokesh von Osten, if Josephine had been my mother, my father would not have been buried at St. Helena, and I should not be at Vienna. My mother is kind but weak. She was not the wife my father deserved. Fairly harsh treatment from uh, young Franz there. 
Well, when it comes to the politics of 1814, I think he's absolutely correct. I think she was a wonderful, you know, dutiful woman. When everything went well, she was fine. But when it came to the conflict between the, her husband and her father, she was too weak. She couldn't even stand up to Napoleon's brother, Joseph, in 1814. She was, she was simply too weak. Josephine would not have put up with it. But, but Marie Louise did. And again, we're going we're gonna to cover a lot of this again uh, in, in greater detail when we get to that episode. And apparently it has been also suggested that uh, Franz was uh, assassinated via arsenic poisoning, similar to the, the, the theories that Napoleon was assassinated for political reasons. In 1940, his remains were transferred as a gift to France from Adolf Hitler from Vienna to the Dome of Les Invalides in Paris, where he rested for some time beside his father, later being moved to the lower church. His heart and intestines remain in Vienna, in urn 42 in the Hertzgruft, and his viscera are in urn 76 of the Ducal Crypt in Vienna. I don't even know what viscera are. What, 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 what is his viscera, Bob? That's the, rest of the, that's the rest of his guts, yeah. Lovely. Charming. Well, that brings us to the end of a very special episode 22. We um, had hoped uh, uh, that we might get on to some of the lead-up to the invasion of Russia and the War of the Sixth Coalition, but as Bob uh, accurately predicted at the outset, nowhere, nowhere even close. After 90 minutes, nowhere even close. Bob Packett, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, sir, for your contribution. Well, thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. And, um, yes, it was a it was a real pleasure, Bob, to to quote unquote meet you over the air like this. And <laughs> and and, and uh, again, I, I I echo my my friend Cameron's uh, uh, appreciation for for your podcast and and the work that you do to promote history. And and it's been a real real pleasure to have you on the show. And and I hope I haven't dominated too much. I get used to doing all the talking here. And oh, and that's okay. But you've you've been a real real asset, and 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 I hope we we do it again sometime. Yes, I would be uh, be very happy to do this. Uh, it's and, uh, and, very enjoyable. And of course, and of course uh, I'd love to go and and uh, chat to some of your uh, folks sometime. That would be a great a great idea. We got to figure out a way to, to save on the telephone bill for. Oh, it's fine. I'm, I'm using Skype for this, Bob. It, it costs nothing. It's uh, oh, okay. Two cents a minute. Okay. Now, um, uh, just a plug for, for for those people, if there are any out there that haven't heard your show, sumahistorica.com, Bob. Or yeah, you can go. You can get to it two ways: sumahistorica.com or or historytobob.com. And, and you have, and that'll get you to the site. And you have quite a few episodes that you've done on Napoleonic uh, history. I have, and I'm getting closer because I'm, I'm right now getting getting ready to get rid of the Danton East and the French Revolution. So, uh, in probably another couple of months, I'll be plodding through the Napoleonic era battle by battle. Uh, and the person by I, I, I think I did uh, a, a couple of podcasts on 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 his uh, surrogate mistress and uh, and some other people at that time. I've been bouncing around a little bit. I keep getting people who say, you know, you, you, you love Napoleon, but you don't do a lot of podcasts on Napoleon. Well, it's one of those things like you guys are doing once you get started. 
there's so much to, to go over that uh, you might not do anything else. That's right. Now, uh, you always, at the end of your show, uh, give some recommendations of books that people can read. Have you got any books that you would recommend around? The- I, I do. They're, they're pretty standard, uh, although I really like uh, Alan Palmer's uh, Napoleon and Marie Louise. Uh, but I have The, the Four Years and Empress um, by Stokel. S-T-O-E-C-K-L. And then, of course, from as far as Josephine's concerned, the old old classic uh, massacres, uh, Napoleon and Josephine. And I had, then, then, of course, if you can find any book with their letters, um, you know, the, the love letters between Napoleon and Josephine, and, and those are great. And, and for, for those who, who are, are French-speaking, if you can find the Frédéric Maison uh, books on the Bonaparte family, they are incredible. Uh, I've got one on Josephine, I have the one on his son, and then one on Marie Louise. They're monumental, but uh, excellent, excellent things. Thank you, Bob. David, have you got any bibliography recommendations? Well, not uh, off the top of my head. Uh, I will say that the Maison books are also uh, available uh, in. Uh, in, in English, and, and they're quite good. Uh, there's one called Josephine, Empress, and Queen, uh, which came out in 1899, but, but it, it can be found. Another one, Napoleon at Home, uh, Napoleon and the Fair Sex. Uh, those, those three books are, are pretty interesting uh, in their insights on, on Napoleon's uh, 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 life. And... Uh, Hold on just a second here. There was a, there were a couple of other. There's a couple of, of biographies. First of all, there's a number of collections of letters of Napoleon and Josephine, and for that matter, uh, uh, Napoleon's letters to uh, Marie Louise uh, that are good. There's any number of lives of, of uh, Josephine, uh, including uh, one that came out in the 90s, Evangeline Bruce's. Uh, uh, Napoleon and Josephine and an improbable marriage, uh, which is which is pretty good. Uh, and there's one that came out even more recently than that. And I'm, it's uh, well Diana Haig, uh, uh, Diana Reed Haig's book walks through Napoleon and Josephine's Paris is, is a great deal of fun and and gives you insight into her into what what it was like to be Josephine uh, in in Paris at the time. Uh, and uh, you know those those are are, are are pretty good starts. The uh, book that I've used uh, mostly for this is uh, one of the uh, compilations of letters called "The Letters of Napoleon to Marie Louise," with an introduction by Philip Guadala, nineteen thirty-five, Hutchison and Company, London. Thank you very much once again, gentlemen. Our pleasure. Thank you.